I remember struggling with my ego through the whole thing. And I remember vividly thinking, I'd rather kill myself than not own this business, which is a very foreign thought for me. It was very powerful in that moment because it felt like a real thought. And so it was just like, what the? Who is speaking that to you right now? Like, that's me that just thought that, that felt that. Hey, what's up? This is Culture Hustlers, where we talk with artists, designers, performers, writers, and other makers and entrepreneurs on how they hustle their living by selling culture. I'm your host, Lucas Spivey. I'm a BFA MBA, just a straight-up drifter, a second-generation drifter, just roam in the U.S., catching stories of artist entrepreneurs, and doing so inside my mobile incubator. It's a rolling broadcast studio inside a vintage camper trailer that travels across the U.S. It's beautiful. It's uh, the color of champagne and coral. I love those two colors. You know, or it's like beige and orange. I don't know. It depends on what you want to call it. It's kind of a selfie destination. In fact, there's some people literally leaning on the incubator right now as I'm recording this, taking selfies. Uh, <laughs> hey, what's up, dude? No, no, go ahead. <laughs> and we got a Kickstarter up right now through September 3rd where you can buy a ticket to ride along with me. And you can sponsor this podcast or have us pop up in your town with this crazy mobile podcast studio. Go to our website, culturehosters.com, for more details. Here I am in Orlando, and I'm talking to Nick Sembrato. He's the owner of the silkscreen and letterpress monster known as Mama's Sauce. Well, here's the funny thing. I actually interviewed Nick in November of 2017, but that recording got garbled. I really don't know what happened. Nick came over to the incubator. He brought me a loaf of bread. I remember that. It was delicious. Thank you, Nick. And then I don't know what wrong after that, but Nick, uh, all his audio just sounded like he was underwater, just like... So we had to re-record. But luckily, I was back in Orlando, and this time I got to do a tour of Mama's Sauce. It's a small warehouse outside downtown Orlando with letterpress machines, lots of silkscreen setups, presses, and other equipment, and a copious amount of past projects as examples for clients to peruse. Very smart. The smell of ink, the, the hum of the presses. Honestly, I think the most telling part of the operation is that people were genuinely happy to be working there. I mean, you could just feel it. They, they like their job, and honestly, who couldn't like Nick? He's simultaneously passionate and also laid back at the same time. So some of the lessons he's gonna share um, okay, how do I compete with huge, fast-moving companies with lots of capital? And if I do need an investor, how do I get over my ego to give up a piece of my company? Nick really says yes to momentum and the r next right thing. Something he said, uh, quote, uh, here's the quote, here's the quote. The sunk cost fallacy is a strong emotional driver. I think all us creatives can relate to that. We've given our creation or our business a certain chunk of our life, our soul, and then we got to change. I mean, how do we know when it's right to change and what do we change? Personally, I'm, I'm good at the two steps forward thing, but I suck at the step backward. It really messes with me. But I think if I can master that step backward, that pivot, that reroute, then all the steps forward have so much more direction and impact. Yeah, so I'm Nick Sambrato. I have a company called Mama Sauce that I'm the CEO of, I guess, you know? And uh, 
maybe I'm, I'm known as that. I'm also known here locally as a bread baker, and I'm growing that as well. Um, I've been told it's pretty good. It's very good. Yeah, all right. And um, yeah, and that's that's me. So are you from Orlando? My identity with Orlando is complicated. Wow, it's funny. Yeah, am I from Orlando? I want to say yes, and I want to say no. You know, I grew up... What a hard question always to answer. I'm sorry to Who ask are you? where you're from. Son of a... um, yeah, well, you know what? Yes, kind, yes. I'll say yes, but also no. Yeah, I lived part-time in Orlando from the time when I was maybe seven or eight until um, I was 18. Only on weekends, you know, kind of like that. So I have a, uh, an identity and affinity with Orlando, but did not go to school here. Did... Yeah, I lived here part-time. <laughs> and I eventually found my way back full-time. That's how much I love it. I did a lot of my learning outside. I went to college outside of Orlando, and then I went to college in Orlando. What did you study? Um, I studied communication. How am I doing? You're you're dodging the question. <laughs> no, I'm having fun. Man, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm a constant learner. I learn everything. Every I don't know. I'm, I'm constantly learning. So I learned a lot here. And I've been here now full time since 2003. Yeah. So, yeah, so I've, I've been here a long time, man. What was a formative experience growing up for you, like around art or culture or design? We weren't an art or culture or design-centric kind of family. Culture, yeah, I mean, we were very centric around it, very homey Italian. Think of like what you saw Italian-Americans like looking like in a home. Like using their hands, as gesturing to, very to, loudly. Yeah, to speak, yeah. And food was a food core everywhere. component. Yeah. Yeah, that whole thing. Yeah, culturally. We listened to a lot of doo-wop and Frank Sinatra and Rat Pack. The only art hanging on the walls, we had a, a Velvet Elvis when I was a kid. Ooh, yeah, nice. Legit Velvet is, is, Elvis. He's like on stage in the... Uh... It was just a bust. Big Cyburn, 70s Elvis. Yeah, it was a bust of him. And then we had a lot of uh, Catholic art. I saw art through the lens of Catholicism, mostly. I don't know. I never really, no galleries, no fine art, didn't know much about design. It was, um, it was all those just things. Like a, Icons. It sounds like rich in tradition. Rich in tradition, yeah, absolutely. Tradition Have you been to Vatican museums? Vatican museums? Yeah, the Vatican Museum, yeah. Is that like the just a Catholic church? Um, it is, is in the Vatican, museum? and it's like they're collection of, I think they have 70,000 original pieces, maybe 20,000 of which are on display, ranging from Matisse and Picasso all the way to Da Vinci. And I remember having to study all the different very special artifacts that were in very special churches across Europe and over the world. Mm -hmm. And it'd be like, the bone of like St. Demetrius is like stored under the sanctuary crypt of Our Lady of Perpetual Sadness. Sadness. Yeah, it's that one. You know, in Glad somewhere you know in Spain. And uh, you're like, oh, that's really cool that you have a shoulder bone. Like, what does that mean? And they're like, oh, you pray to it. Yeah. You're like, okay. And then what do I get? And they're like, you get good fortune in uh, lovemaking or something like that. Well, hey, I know you're on this journey right now and you want some good fortune in lovemaking. Let me tell you about an experience like that that you can have that's in line with this whole Catholic icon thing. You want to find yourself on the high road from... Um, the high road to Taos, the next time you're going through New Mexico. Okay. Take the high road to Taos, and you want to go through Chimayo. I've been to Chimayo. You have been to Chimayo. I've been to and Chimayo. you seen the icons? Did you yes. spread the sacred sand and dirt on you? Uh, I left some of my own. Uh, I, I, I tied some things that were very special to the fence there. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So I had mementos from, I mean, I had just lost my 
my great grandmother. So I, mm. I tied a memento about her on the fence. Mm. And I went in the church, and the church was full of like birds, and there was like poop everywhere. And I was like, "This is such a special church. <laughs> like it was like a true church, like yeah. of the earth." Yeah, totally. And now coming full circle back to my experience with art, you've been there, you've seen the icon, you've seen that. Like to me, icons, you know, like things being sacred, portraitures being sacred, statues being sacred. They have like a, a power inside them. Yeah. Oh, certainly. I mean, like. Yeah, from where I come from, absolutely. Yeah, my mom will. I mean, she, she fills the house with statues of angels and things like that. Yeah. Okay, interesting. So, how do you get into graphics and print then? You were. I mean, it really wasn't the the high road to Chimayo or art for me. It was um, it was just a utilitarian, practical kind of thing. It made sense in my portfolio at the time. I was. You went from communications to. Um, I went from communication to grad school here in Winter Park for communication. A buddy of mine started a record label, wanted a partner. Um, I partnered with him. I brought a little bit of capital and some sweat equity with me, and we started a record label. And um, What was the name of the record label? It's called Bonded Records, named after um, not just our affinity and bond for each other, my friend and I. But Did you say bondage? Bondage. Bonded. Bonded. But um, but Gold Bond was certainly uh, a regular practice for me. We've been yeah. thinking that we want to get sponsored by Gold Bond. Until we get an air conditioner in here? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, yeah, I don't know why I haven't done that yet, man. You're in Florida right now. You know that, right? So this show is brought to you by the fine folks at Gold Bond. Thanks, Gold Bond. Yeah, thank you. Paying it forward right now. Yeah, so my road to uh, graphic design and art came through that. I purchased a digital print shop that well, I was a client of that catered to independent artists and small record labels to produce very um, inexpensive digital printing. It was one of the guys that was in a band I managed needed a flexible part-time job. So I was like, well, this probably be flexible. It was an online-based company and, and seemed like it, I, you know, maybe it would be a few hours a week. But, you know, um, it turned out to be full-time and introduced us to so many more artists and started sh- introducing us to more show art. And we started doing a lot of poster art, but digital versions of it. And um, and then that made its way to seeing gig posters in the screen print world. Mm. And that was like a revelation yeah. to me, yeah. you know, um, and then not just like the art that comes with it and the scene that comes with it. But also I was really drawn to the mixing of the inks, the setting up of the screens, the struggle of trying to figure out how to make this damn stuff by hand. You know, um, it was much different than click, click, beep, beep, you know. So when did you go from digital to hand? Uh, a year into that. And then another year after that, I, I met a letterpress face to face and that changed my life. Face to face? Like it like it just confronted you on the street? Yeah, I, I was out there talking shit. Like, man, you ain't no letterpress, ain't nothing. That's a dead art, man. Yeah, it rolled up on me. I was like, yo, And the letterpress came up and was like, you shut your mouth, young man. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, it was an old man. It was a print shop retire, you know, going out of business. He was retiring, and and um, we needed a piece of equipment, that, you know, a paper cutter. And I went in there, and I saw a letterpress running, moving. Like, and you, when you see, literally, the peak of the industrial revolution, as you know, like, just in action pneumatics and yeah. mechanics how complicated can you make a yeah. pneumatic yeah piece well you, of machinery? you saw the, the press in there called a kluge right and the word kluge is you know a word for a complicated contraption like a kludger a kluger kluger 
You calling me something here right now? It's a hashtag out there. Like when you cludge or kludge something together. I never meant to enter graphic design uh, into this culture, into printmaking, you know, but um, I don't know. Uh, it, it dictated when I, when I met the finer parts of printing. All right, so you find this uh, letterpress machine. And is it is it kind of like the clouds part and like a ray of light shines on it and you're like, this is the way it's meant to be? Or you're like, huh, I wonder what that's about. And then a slow movement into non-digital. It, it was love at first sight. I mean, it, it, it's the only way to really... You were in there. You saw that. I, I turned on that very press for you. I wanted you to see it, you know, uh, for yourself. It's everything about it. You can... That particular machine is so transparent. It's the complete opposite of um, your laptop right here, where even if you opened it, you wouldn't see the inner workings. You wouldn't see, you would see them, but you wouldn't see motion. You would see nothing happening. It's so opaque. And that machine is, is just like exposing itself to you. It's every working element, its entire being. And if you sat there and stared at it long enough, and for me, I did, you could watch it from the ground up and realize just the genius you know that 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 made it and how it operates and works without a single you know uh, without a single computerized part it's all mechanics all pneumatics you know and even the motor that's on there was an afterthought the machine existed as it was without a motor for foot prior. pedal operation for foot pedal operation you could take off that motor and put a foot pedal on there and it'll go and love at first sight yeah, and that's what really propelled me into this world. Um, so it's, you know, like anything, you know, you take a step forward, a step forward, and you don't maybe don't know the direction you're going. Before you know it, you've, you've walked X amount of miles. Now, how do you switch from doing digital printing over to silkscreen and then letterpress? Because you've already spent money on these equipment, and you've already started offering these types mm. of products to your customer and mm. then you're going to flip don't you have to find completely different customers maybe even different employees different everything the sunken cost fallacy is a strong emotional driver a mental driver right um and for us when we came to the crossroads sometimes when your business is really hard you have to step back and say well, every time it's really, well what's got to change you know and for us, it became very obvious when things were very hard that we were trying to manage two different things that just didn't want to live under the same roof. You know, we were fortunate enough to bring a customer base in alongside of our digital customer base, customer base um, that could support the analog side of what we're doing. Um, but still, it wasn't you know, by the time where we made that decision, digital printing was over two thirds of our revenue. Was it was it a numbers game though? Because like, how are you going to compete with, I don't know, Vistaprint or Gotprint? You know, these massive digital juggernauts. And you're like, look, we could we could really scale up in order to compete with that market, or we could get real specific and be the best at this. Mm. To scale up to compete with a juggernaut, right? Like. Yeah, I mean, that's that's. I've not, seen their presses; they're they're massive. That's not that's not something a scrappy person's going to do. You know, that's that's they enterprise. Like millions and millions of investment to millions open up a new factory. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and not something I have access to. Nor, I mean, honestly, the experience or acumen to do. But I can carve out a niche, right? 
And the niche that we're carving out for DIY touring independent artists, it, it, it wouldn't provide the future that we needed, you know? Um, so if we're going to carve out a niche, we might as well carve one out where people are going like, yeah, I'll throw money at that. You know, so it was the kind of place that, and the kind of processes that demand capital. And they will not tolerate anything less than like, it's a money hungry thing because it's so much labor and so much material. So that messaging that, you know, and at the moment in time where people are actually willing to accept the idea of handmade and put value behind it, it was just the right moment, the right time. We were lucky enough to be able to capitalize on the confluence of, of a moment. Yeah, we opened our doors in the economic downturn. I actually was in real estate, you know, and um, just finished losing my ass, you know, um, when I, I was, spent my it last... Was, it was bad. My last five thousand dollars on buying the company, the digital company. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, yes. I'm. Yeah. It was real bad. I'm. I'm, I'm a Floridian. You know, in real estate. How big was the operation from the beginning? Was it just you doing the digital printing? No, it was one other person, Joey, who was in a band that I managed, and he, he like uh, when we turned the website back on because we. We bought this company that we were clients of. They had turned the website off and like, ah, we're done. And I was like, all right, well, I'll take it, you know? Yeah. And um, so we turned the website back on and Joey was, you know, it took one day for them to train me how to do it. And I came back and showed Joey. I was like, we got an email from the website. You take their art, you put it in this template, you hit print, you put it in that thing, you cut it and you put it in a box and you send it. And it was just pretty much it, you know? Did and you rebrand or do you keep... Not at first. It was a different company. And then we didn't rebrand until I saw a whole new future for us and knew that, like, we needed to shed everything that was what it, the company once was. But when you went from digital to analog, you are like, this is a good time to rebrand. Mama Sauce is, like, kind of says, like, something about the, the homemade. Yeah, it. it wasn't even, like, it, it was so organic because it was, like, a vision. Like, you know, it was... Um, I was like, if we need, like, if we do this, like this stuff that we're learning right now, this handmade, let's do that. And if we do it, we'll call it mama sauce. Let's do that. You know, it's like, there's like a passion moment, you know, just kind of like, ah, you know, and, um, the name just came out and, and, um, and then we just followed it. We just followed it. I mean, we were working in a kitchen mixing inks at the moment, you know, so kind of like felt right. So you moved, you moved to this shop. Four or five years ago? Yeah, something like that. Mm -hmm. How frustrating was it to move an operation like that? Well, let's go back to Joey real quick, our first employee and um, who is our general manager of 10 years until he just recently just recently left and went uh, moved to Philly to be closer to his family. And um, thankfully, because of Joey, it was pretty pretty pain-free. He like, I was like, Joey, I want, you know, let's do this planet and let's only be at, down for one day, you know? Whoa. Yeah, and he pulled it off. We were down for like a half a day. But you guys um, had to plan for plan. that one day. Yeah, we it took us a year to move. So it was quite a bit of planning. Yeah, it took us a year to move. This is like a bank heist. Like it takes you a year to plan out how you're going to do this one day heist. Yeah, and finally my Nixon mask. Like, So so actually take, take me through that day like visually. You guys wake up at what time in the morning? You're seeing you're seeing old school guys with 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 mangled digits because you know they're the guys who still know how to move equipment. You're seeing big flatbed trucks. Um, you're seeing electricians and you're seeing uh, you're seeing old presses being flown around on on forklifts. You know, just getting everything in place and wired up. Half of them went first, and then we kept running at the other location, and then we transitioned our work over to there, and then 
second half came. So that's how we're able to manage doing that, doing it kind of in a wave. Because otherwise, you know, you have to, you know, build runway to be down and then to be down, you know, um, it's not a ton of competition in what we do. There's out there, but largely people will go where the work can get done when it can get done on time. And so being down is not a good thing. Have you had any bad experiences being down? Oh, yeah, but not because of the move. I mean, we had one of our software providers that was an enterprise software solution that I I won't name right now because I'm in a dispute with them because their core service went down for an entire business day. And even as analog as we are, if your entire digital infrastructure goes down, it's what the hell do we do today? Oh, so like you can't like start working on a run because you can't keep track of it in the system there's anything that maybe you already have committed in 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 on a ticket for sure but there's nothing you know pretty much like you know it's like half of the work you know so yeah that's our experience in being down like did you you had to punt for a day but it didn't it didn't wreck any relationships. yeah it doesn't wreck any relationships it doesn't wreck any relationships i mean we were down for three days the last hurricane you know but people are very understanding about that you know, the company, I mean, we just couldn't work for three days. No, no power. In this world where manufacturing is becoming more constricted, get ahead on your timelines, yo. You know, like, like don't try to deliver and, have, you know, like always plan for chaos. Murphy's Law is really real. Your deadline should be days before your deadline, if not weeks before your deadline, always. And we try to get there too, but it's so hard. The longer you have a business, the more you realize that chaos is real. So, yeah, for me, my deadline's always three days before my deadline, you know? It's just, it's just got to be that way. So you're only positioning yourself for potential failure. It's just a fail point opportunity to say, like, I need this the day I need it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, um, but it's hard because we live in, in a world where, you know, um, increasingly more demands on us and you compartmentalize the best you can, but your deadlines are based on need. And next thing you know, like, I move to this now. I can't tell you how many times we have a job queued up and then like the person disappears and then they come back to her. It's like, oh gosh, okay, fine. Let me, all right, you you need me to pay for this now? We move forward for it now. He's like, well, you lost a week. But like, I understand like, you know, it's really hard just to be like, I get a hundred emails a day. I'll I'll pay for them, move forward on that. But like, it's just hard, man. We live in a hard world, a lot of demands, but you got to give people some, some, some runway. But yes, print has deadlines, but everything does. But it all comes down to uh, the ecosystem between, you know, the, the client and us as well. All right. So someone who uses a lot of materials, uh, how do you think about sustainability in your business? That's a, I mean, it's, it's genuinely a, a tough one because, I mean, we, we produce a lot of um, paper products. Right? So we try to work with vendors that we believe in uh, using only the finest materials that uh, are you know, FSE certified. What's that um, certification? Uh, sustainable forestry usage, you know, re- recycled material and content, um, uh, places that run on hydropower. You know, one of our, our biggest paper vendor that we utilize, French paper company, has been hydropowered since the 1920s. You know, their entire mill, and they actually provide, you know, power for their town as well off of, you know, their generators, one of which is the original still running. Um, and, you know, they, uh, their pulp, they don't buy virgin pulp. In fact, if you go there, and I highly suggest you do, if you're on your way to Detroit, please stop by Niles, Michigan and go see French. The, the, the 18 wheelers arriving with paper supplied 
are bales and bales of off clippings of, from other printers and paper manufacturers of their waste. They buy waste in bulk and then they pulverize that and make it into paper. And they've been doing that for generations. A long time ago, we moved away from anything. When we used to do shirts years ago, we're like, no plastisols, only water-based gross. You know, like it strictly began from the environmental and our personal environment. Um, and then we don't work with solvent-based inks. We we don't use you know a very, we use the very minimal amount of chemical that we can possibly use. All of our water all of our inks are water-based unless they're the letterpress inks, and then they're soy oil-based, and they're things that can you know break down with the most minimal the most minimal chemical possible. In fact, you know uh, our letterpress inks, although they're soy oils, you can break them down with Crisco. Um, so you know we don't have anything that you couldn't wash legally down the drain, and we do have micron filters for that. Uh, anything that does go down the drains, but we do produce a decent amount of paper waste, and we made sure that our recycling partner that we work with in town is one that actually recycles the paper, <laughs> because you actually really have to ask that. Yeah. Um, you really do, and we produce a lot of drop, um, but we we do our impositions, planning our runs to be the most maximal usage of the paper entirely possible, um, and that paper we try to get from the most you know well sourced place possible, and uh, yeah, a lot of effort goes into being as as eco friendly as we possibly can, and as friendly to our employees as we possibly can in the environment. Um, you know, like I said, no solvents, nothing that it's, you spray into the air. So being a boss is like one angle of it, but like you care about growing their talent so that they can help you grow the business. But they're also, they're not machines, they're human beings, right? Any business owner would interpret their own unique way because we all, I think, probably have our struggles that are unique to us and how we see our relationship to our coworkers and our responsibility to our coworkers. The way I view it in particular is that it's an ecosystem, that there are expectations of me and there's expectations uh, of everyone else. And um, I certainly don't live in a vacuum and none of us do. So we're equally yoked in that plane. I've got to do my job and I have to carve out the specifics of my job as well as I can and everyone else has to do theirs. Now, there's issues of satisfaction and reward, be it financial or emotional or physical and I find it best for my mental well-being to try to think about how do we make this the healthiest company possible and the byproducts of that will provide what they provide you know we we produce things for people and there's a lot of satisfaction that comes from that because people put a lot of trust in us to interpret their work and to help create alongside of the designs but it's also very grueling and production-based. So it's easy to mistake the forest for the trees, just like so it goes with anything in life. But it's much easier when those trees are flying by at 60, 70 miles an hour like they do with us. You know, at 3,000 impressions an hour on one presser, 300 impressions an hour on another. It's not an art studio where we can spend all day just getting one thing right. You know, um, so there's a high level of expertise to get it to that point. So now you're managing the journey to get someone's uh, skill set to there. You're also um, balancing that with expectation from clients. You're balancing that with that person's expectation of their journey. And you're trying to create financial reward for everybody. And you're trying to, you know, create an ecosystem where we can all enjoy a beer after work sometimes too. So how do I view myself in all that? 
I distance myself from the operations and put other people in charge of that and then say like in this moment, you know, like it's almost like channeling a Michael Scott, but I always thought it wasn't quite that ridiculous. But looking back on it now, I'm like, well, am I a buffoon, you know, or is this ridiculous? How about this? Was there ever a moment where you're like, oh, shit, but it worked out? Like that kind of a run where you look back on it and you have that smiling moment where you're like, yeah, we really rocked that. Like, like we came together, we put our heads together and we figured that out. We got it out the door. I feel like that happens every day. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, clients want things when they want them or need them when they need them. And we're pushing through a lot of handmade product and there's happy accidents all the time. Has there ever been an accident where you're like, let's go with that now, that looks better? You can make that decision if you fully know you have the trust of your client and the empowerment to do that. Otherwise, we spend a great amount of time managing expectations for exactly what our plan is and how we're going to execute it. Any wisdom that you would give a printmaker or someone, someone, an artist who wants to go at scale in production? Like Mm -hmm. they, like maybe they're a bookbinder and they've only made, they make editions of like one to five or they are a printmaker who does like very nice woodcuts and they only do like an edition of 20 and they realize that uh, I need to go bigger, faster, but still have all that quality. Do you have any advice for them? You find if you're really good at what you do as an artist, things will present themselves. You know, the the Medici and waiting are just out there looking to uh, benefact you or, you know, or... uh, if you're really good. If you're really good, you know, do 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 you do it well and you stick to that and you know, someone's going to find it and want it and do it, you know. So this person was at that point and they just wanted like and but they you know, they they had no idea about the business side of things. They're buying all their their stuff retail at the art store still, which is fine and awesome, but your business, you know, mm. your business at this point, a, a tax seller's certificates. You don't have to pay tax on your consumables, you know, an FEIN number so you can buy things wholesale. You know, these sort of things are available to you. I would say there's a a, a, a lo- federal em- uh, em- federal employment identification number. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Business edu. You are an art history minor. What was your major? Uh, interdisciplinary art, and then I did a master's in finance. Okay. So Little known fact, I did my associates in composition. Finance. So you, you, you understand how business, op- how, you know, how that operates. Did you get any of that in, in any of your art education at all? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. In fact, the closest it came to finance was hearing about uh, an artist who married a wealthy husband. And I was like, oh, finance. <laughs> Um, but surprisingly, that's how a lot of non-art businesses get off the ground, too, is, hey, we need a pot of money to start this. And it doesn't matter whether that's a loan, an investor, a Kickstarter, or savings from your full-time job. But, like, you need a pot of money to start almost any business. And so mm-hmm. what I learned from looking at finance of individual artists and then from, like, <laughs> like a master's program at a business school is that however you proceed, you need some money. And yeah. any way you do it, there's not one that's morally superior to the other. Just got to find it. Yeah. I mean, maybe not morally superior in an, objective, in an objective sense, but 
certainly superior to um, you know being subject to how you're built may not be a partner may not you know not everyone's partnerable I say that because a lot of artists have deep shame that their business isn't profitable enough to become profitable and I'm like you just need an infusion of capital sometimes in order to make a profitable Mm -hmm. business so you have to have a pot of money so don't feel ashamed that you had to like borrow from someone like Mm -hmm. that's what Twitter does and this is something that hasn't come up in our conversation yet but for us getting to scale and getting the equipment we needed required an infusion of capital and something I was very very proud of accomplishing but also was really 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 hard so I have a business partner and I got my business partner halfway through our journey and um I remember struggling with my ego through the whole thing. And I remember vividly thinking, I'd rather kill myself than not own this business, which is a very foreign thought for me. But it was very also pertinent, you know, it was very powerful in that moment because it felt like a real thought. And so it was just like, what the who is speaking that to you right now? They're like, that's me that just thought that, that felt that. And so when you say that there's a lot of shame or whatever, like there's a lot of ego in what we do, you know, if we're creating, if we're making something so close to your heart. But to make something go, there always has to be some kind of collaborative spirit or person or capital or something. You're not everything. You can't be everything. And so when I thought that, my instant reaction was like, oh, I have to do this. What, are you going to succumb to that thought? Give that no power. You know, that's your ego speaking right there. So I brought on a partner, and we got the capital infusion. And honestly, we've accomplished things that we'd never have been able to accomplish before. And something I'm very proud of, that we were able to give a real business backbone to this company because of that. And if you're going to do something like that, you have to find the compliments that you need. And I feel like we really found the compliments that we need, um, not just in capital, but, you know, in in a lot of institutional knowledge that came with it as far as straight business is concerned. I needed that. I needed that bad. So ego can be one hell of a driver in your creative journey, but knowing where to kind of let go of some things, is it's going to take you to the next level. I'm still thinking about what Nick said. He said, uh, if you're really good at what you do as an artist, things will present themselves. Is it really that easy? Um, no, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's a truism, right? But you got to keep making and you got to keep telling people what you made and then repeat because things will come up. I mean, I advocate for taking shortcuts all the time. Take a shortcut wherever you can, but when it comes to your work, there's no shortcut. You have to keep going. I mean, two steps forward, one step back. You just repeat, repeat, repeat. Wish you could have been in this episode. It's stupid easy. Call or text 978-712-8858. That number again is 978-712-8858. Or Instagram or Facebook message me at Culture Hustlers. Tell me your name, your city, your business, and get on this podcast. Uh, In fact, uh, as I'm recording this, uh, some people were stunting and taking selfies in front of it and I went to talk to them. (laughs) They were doing a photo shoot. For a rap group, so uh, it really is that easy to get a hold of me. Um, I'm going to look into their stuff. Maybe they'll be on this podcast. You can follow the travels 
and the live stories on Instagrams, Facebook, and culturehustlers.com. And check out more podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Our producer is Axie Berman, and our theme is by the very talented Otis McDonald. Wishing you a lot of love from sunny Orlando. They don't call me one take Nick for nothing, you know? It's because I refuse to redo my screw-ups. <laughs>